0: Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson.
1: Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is the co-author of The Mental Game of Poker, Poker Satellite Strategy, and PKO Poker Strategy, the always witty and hilarious Barry Carter. Not only has Barry co-authored three revered books in the poker space, he also runs popular blog PokerMediaPro.com, and in his day job is the chief editor at PokerStrategy.com. Barry's dry sense of humor and thoughtful observations about the world around us makes him one of my personal favorite guests on CPG, which explains why I'll jump at any chance to have him on time and time again. Also, there are very few people in the poker world who are totally fine spontaneously jumping on here every couple of months, even if they don't have anything to talk about, and Barry is one of those people. In today's conversation with the inimitable Barry Carter, you're going to learn Barry and I's somewhat prescient thoughts on the awfulness of the IOC, as this was recorded two months back before the games even began, how making decisions at the poker table without understanding the strategy behind them as a whole can spell disaster, why having a target to shoot at almost always means the difference between success or failure, and much, much more. Before you dive into this conversation with Barry Carter, I wanted to let you know I'm currently running a free nuffle promotion. If you've never had a Bovada account and live in the United States, simply visit freenuffle.com to get step-by-step instructions on how you can get nuffle for free. Don't worry, it's easy mode and involves clicking a link, making an account, and making a deposit. And yes, before you ask, I do get an affiliate reward if you sign up, That's why I'm bribing you with a free $199 course. One more time, that link is freeNuffle.com. That's free N-U-F-F-L-E dot com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you the always entertaining co-architect of three poker classics, the great Barry Carter. Mr. Carter, how are you doing, sir?
2: I'm good. We are—we almost have good weather in the UK, and we are almost allowed to do things again in the UK, so not bad.
1: Things are shaping up?
2: A little bit, yeah. We, um, we've done horrifically in just about every aspect of the pandemic except for vaccinations. I got my um, second jab five days ago, something like that um i think today officially half the country has had two jabs um so yeah a rare thing you're gonna see today brad is called british optimism <laughs> usually um, only happens like once a world war or something like that
1: yeah i mean i i see your your background the listener won't be able to see it but it's it looks nice and landscaped and I, i'm just getting this uh first hand view of where all of the mental game of poker money is going it's going in your backyard
2: <laughs> do you know you, you you're not actually wrong the uh, the mental game of poker essentially bought my house um <laughs> over the course of 10 years i the i don't know what in the uk we're obsessed with property as an investment because i don't know and <laughs> um It's very, very difficult for people to get on the property ladder. And that book was the only reason that I
1: was able to do so. So astute observation, sir. There you go. See, I I made a joke, but it actually turns out to be closer to the truth. Most of them turn out to be true. Yeah, most jokes are true. So, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, you mentioned the jabs. It's been a little bit since you've been on the podcast solo without Dara. Mm. So we'll start out by asking, what have you been up to over, you know, this past year?
2: Um, the funny thing is with the whole pandemic, like everyone I speak to sort of chimes on about how productive they've been because they've been in the house so much and able to work. I, I've been the complete opposite. This has been the least productive year of my life. I, we've been allowed to do actual things again for sort of the last five weeks. We can go and visit people. We can go to restaurants. We can go to the gym, all those things. The the last five weeks have been like 10 times more productive for me than the last year um because i learned very i, I kind of had an inkling with this but i learned uh, this year that i'm someone that needs regularly to be able to reset to be able to be productive i'm kind of like a you know use up some momentum and then sort of replenish the stores kind of guy and to just be in the house doing the same thing all the time it's been a very unproductive year i mean that, I, uh, technically speaking we r- released pko poker strategy at the start of the pandemic and dara and i have been working on a video course uh series that's pretty much going to be announced uh towards the end of the pandemic but uh, for my own personal standards i've been very unproductive the, the only thing i've done uh more of for the last, last year is is actually play poker itself and i've got slightly better at poker so i'm quite pleased with that but no, other than uh, other than rewatching the entirety of Buffett of
1: Vampire Slayer again, it's been a very, very <laughs> poor showing from me in 2020 and 2021. I mean, the reality is, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. Like, is it related to, like, podcast numbers and all the things, like, during the pandemic? Because, like, I think intuitively you might think, oh, everybody's indoors. Like, they're probably just going to be listening to more podcasts. But the reality oh, no. was way less podcasts. And- Absolutely, yeah. Over time, what I've come to see is that with the cloud, the uncertainty, the doubt and the fear just hanging over everybody's head over the course of a year. It's just created all of these downstream bad things, Um, lack of productivity, uh, mental health issues, just like all kinds of all kinds of problems that I think is, uh, yeah, it's, it's we're all like. I think around the world are letting out like a collective sigh of relief, mm. just so not, not have it over us anymore.
2: Absolutely, I mean, I, I know people that are talking about like, wow, we we can go out again in the UK. Let's book a holiday abroad, and like for me personally, I'm like, no, let's let's just have a normal week. Like, I can't wait to go. Like, I I went out for dinner with friends last week. I, that to me is a holiday by 2021 standards on the podcast thing, I actually think there's a more practical element to that. And there's just, like, there's I, I am a huge consumer of podcasts. They're definitely my favorite form of media. And I've consumed less podcasts in the last year than uh, I have in however long I've been doing them. Because for me, podcasts are something that I listen to whilst I was doing something else. You know, if, if I was traveling somewhere, stick a podcast in. If I was at the gym, stick a podcast in um all those things and I, I think that's how a lot of people use podcasts so when you don't have people um you know with say a regular 30 minute commute to work every single day uh, of course podcast numbers are going to go down um audible the um, the the audiobook retailer have uh, sort of observed similar things with uh, a significant decrease in their uh, uh audiobooks su- subscriptions and stuff simply because people don't things to uh, listen
1: to a podcast while they're doing yeah it's podcasting is like a great secondary activity something that you can do while you're doing something else and Mm -hmm. that that's the major cause i imagine and then the another cause is that like you know when we think about consuming media and how everyone's been like covid has been the media that everyone's been consuming and politics Mm -hmm. and twitter and like so that's like where the collective attention of humanity has been like hyper-focused mm. on, which took the focus off of, you know, all the other stuff, because obviously, you know, priorities, right? Like the that is sort of a major threat to the world economically and um, just obviously in uh, mortality. So, yeah, again, it's it's nice. You know, we're, we're coming out. By the time this podcast gets released, it'll probably, you know, we're talking right now, it's June 3rd and it'll probably be, august or so so hmm. things will be even better by august and hopefully people will be like shut the hell up brad and barry things are yeah, yeah. looking, looking <laughs> well,
2: way up either now. that or that, oh, we're dealing with uh, covid 21 of course uh, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no it's it's you're right it's especially where's then, the british optimism barry no well, <laughs> I, that is british optimism like, like <laughs> we, we we'll only get covid 20 uh, 21 not covid 21 <laughs> and nuclear war uh, uh, no, you, you're right. The um the constant COVID news cycle and like you guys have had, you know, a very divisive five, four, five or six years in politics. In the UK, we've had Brexit, which is a very, very similar thing. It's mentally exhausting. And like, uh, like, I don't understand how people can spend so much of their time on these things, and especially like arguing on Twitter about things with people that People are never going to change their opinion on certain things because of the combative nature of it all. I I, I don't understand how anybody gets anything done when they're so consumed in things like that.
1: You know, it's, it's by design, you know, you're, Mm -hmm. you're a writer, you're an author. I, I study lots of sales copy. I write. And like, when you look at the headlines, the headlines are designed to pull you in. They're designed to be divisive, uh, be polarizing, and create strong opinions. And like, really, I mean, a lot of the news, media, the sci- all that stuff is to blame here. And I think Twitter too, you know, Twitter wants engagement they want people on their platform they want people tweeting and so like they also facilitate that sort of interaction the outrage and just the argument and yelling and name calling and all of that stuff it's like good for business with twitter right and so like it's just part part of the design and it's tapping into our basic human biology and it's unfortunate and you can see that like there's manipulation going on but i mean Sometimes there's not much you can really do about it.
2: Yeah, it's the I've I've learned begrudgingly that you kind of have to look at the incentives that the people who create this content are uh, sort of aligning themselves with. And at the end of the day, like, I mean, this has always been the case for the media to some extent. But you know, they they they, they it used to be they want to sell newspaper papers, but now they're incentivized in a way that you know they did tend to get money based on how many eyeballs are on a particular thing um so of course people are going to report on the uh the ter- i mean i mean like f- for example like the uk um i think two days ago uh, we had our first day uh where no covid deaths were reported since the start of the pandemic because obviously we just had a terrible terrible pandemic by most countries standards now to me that is a something that should be celebrated or at least commemorated or marked or something, you know, we should, we shouldn't be like high fiving ourselves because we've had such a bad year. A lot of it was our own faults, but that was something that should be sort of marked and no, didn't even barely made it as a news story because it was, you know, Indian variant of COVID this or something terrible happening in a different country that, you know, it's uh, yeah, there's uh, I I've, Unfortunately, one of the many things that COVID has changed for me has made me very, very suspicious of most news reporting, especially mainstream news reporting. I think poker news reporting is not... Poker news reporting has its own problems. Um, It's very, very biased towards the sites that sponsor whichever site they're writing for. But because the number of views uh, that tend to go to, say, poker sites... Is very small compared to a mainstream news site. We there isn't as much incentive for us to have this rage bait, clickbait stuff. People still do it, but they they, they probably shouldn't be.
1: The so he, here's sort of the crux of the issue. And I just had Ian Simpson on last episode. And if the listener is like, "Oh, he's going to talk about this again." Yes, I'm going to talk about uh, Goodhart's Law. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but basically, it's um, and this again, credit goes to Sahil Bloom on Twitter. For making this point, but Goodhart's law basically states that if a measure of performance becomes a stated goal, humans tend to optimize for it regardless of the associated consequences.
2: Oh, okay. And, like that.
1: Yeah. Right. And when you think about news media, right, like that's just Goodhart's law. You, you're mm. optimizing for clicks and views, and you don't give a shit about the mm. consequences of what's, what you're doing, what's happening, because, like, that's a stated metric, that's a stated goal for the writers for the editors for the companies and so that drives them they don't that the unintended consequences of just the effects of mental health and just all the things it, they just don't care because like it's mm-hmm. not the the system that they're following and so like yeah it's it's a problem and like once you once you sort of understand Goodhart's law you just kind of see it everywhere and it's
2: like oh of course yeah i mean i mean like if um if if you had a stated goal to make X amount of money, like let's say you're a CEO and we're going to like we're, we're going to make a billion dollars in revenue every like you, you could definitely see how then then that same CEO would cut corners or do something a little bit dodgy to uh, to get there. So yeah, so you, you you'd be wanting some sort of um, slightly more oblique type type of goal if you were to set one. You wouldn't want to make it anything specifically results orientated to avoid this good heart law.
1: Yeah, 100%. And um, so you've been, you haven't been doing anything. <laughs> you've <laughs> no, been playing I'm, poker. That's I've, been,
2: the... I've, been, I've, I've played some poker. I, I, I have worked. I, as I say, Dara and I created a, a video course thing, but it's, it's, you know, mostly like I'd say the first month of the pandemic, I was sort of petrified of the whole thing, but then, you know, you learn about it and stuff. And no it it was definitely my laziest year we we got a lot of tv shows in um we walked the dog a lot we uh, it's yeah it's it's amazing really like it's it feels like it feels like it's been 10 years and it also feels like it's been about 4 weeks um it's really distorted the whole concept of time but yeah like the last 5 weeks i've been sort of you know infinitely more productive and um engaged in life and generally in a better mood and everything so yeah long that's may good continue.
1: that's good as they say the the days are long but the years are short um and yeah, that, I like that. Yeah. this this past year certainly feels that way mm. uh what's what's something about you that not a lot of people know um Besides that, people. Uh, call okay, you okay,
2: okay, I'll I'll, I'll I'll tell you a fun one. Not a fun one. This is actually a terrible one, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't tell people this. But it's, it's it's interesting. I don't I don't think it's a stigma to it. Um, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, it's not much of a problem for me anymore, but it was a severe problem for me a, a, a few years ago in my life. In fact, here's a positive. Like, the pandemic actually made me less obsessive compulsive disorder. Like the, the The obsessiveness was around the idea of safety, like I always kind of had this kind of like, you know, this, uh, I always looked at safety through like an odds perspective and stuff like that, like, you know, plane, you know, the odds of you dying in a plane crash is not something like that, and I always kind of tried to optimise my life for for safety and stuff like that, and it used to be really, really bad, but it's not really bad anymore, which is probably why I'm happy to mention it now that it's not an issue anymore. And I'd say the pandemic might have killed it off because, you know, there was a real danger out there rather than my uh, trying to work out the odds of my wife getting to work without having a car accident or something like that. You oh know? So, no, that was one of them. So yeah, very, very um, strange. It was. Uh, it did make me very productive though. That's the, that's, the, that's the kind of flip side because I was I was I was also obsessed with like efficiency and things like that, but yeah, it's not an issue anymore, which is why I don't mind mentioning it.
1: Yeah, it's. uh, I I can see. I mean, it it works both ways, right? Depends on what you're obsessed with. Uh, If Mm. you're 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 obsessed with your wife dying in a car accident and knowing knowing the numbers so that you can like run the calc, then that's probably
2: seventeen million to one on any given day. So it's pretty low, but I still do the numbers.
1: (laughs) Oh man. Why? Why you got to put that in my head now? Now I'm well, gonna be the one that's obsessing over it. Seventeen million to one.
2: Yeah, that's UK roads. I, I don't know. What, I don't know what the deal is with um uh, with with American roads. I uh, I don't want to know. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't want to know. But it's it's very very low. Is the uh, is the actual sort of positive takeaway? Um, but on, is- on the flip on the flip side of things, like it, it also meant that I was you know very tidy, very um I. Always got things done sort of way earlier than I had to. I'd usually arrive at an airport four hours early and stuff like that. somehow managed to maintain a marriage despite all of that
1: yeah, that's that's actually an accomplishment. Mm. <laughs> Barry, we're not going to be late. Yeah. Barry, we're not go- we're not driving fast. We're not going over the speed limit. We're not increasing oh, well, our odds.
2: That's the thing I, yeah, I, I I get there early, but i I don't drive there quickly, so. Actually, that's another thing people should know about me. I am a terrible driver. <laughs> like my 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 wife is a is a really good driver, and um, she uh, when so she does most of the driving in a relationship. And when she gets uh, when she's stuck behind someone driving slowly, she gets really really frustrated. And this, someone was driving really really slowly the other day, and I just turned to her and said, "If if you'd seen me drive before, you know, when you first met me, we we never would have got married."
1: Uh, she she never would have accepted it so so she drives you you don't drive yeah, you're not you're yeah. not allowed to drive
2: um no i'm not allowed to drive uh, the only time we dr- i drive is when um we take the dog somewhere because my car it has the dirty dog in it so gotcha. no she 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 drives everywhere i i have absolutely no issue with taking the traditional uh the non-traditional gender role where that's concerned because i am a terrible
1: yeah, I so something that not a ton of people know about me is I get motion sickness like exceptionally easily, and so really? yeah, I have to drive everywhere. Else, I start like my palms get sweaty, I get clammy, and then mm. it's just spewville everywhere. So like, it's uh, if I ever go on like, I'll never be going on a card player cruise because no. it's just, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that's the thing. Honestly, I don't think I'll be ever be going on a cruise after this past year. Um, no, no I don't think
2: anybody will be for a while.
1: Yeah, yeah, no cruises. Um, so imagine that there's a Greatest Hits collection for the best stories that you've, you know, accumulated over the course of your poker journey. And you're sitting around the table telling stories to your friends, your family. Tell me a story that would be on Barry Carter's Greatest Hits album.
2: This is kind of my go-to story for people who don't know poker that well but want to know like about the big money um things that happen in poker. I was um I was working uh at a uh I was working for poker news at a televised uh poker cash game that party poker was sponsoring. It was called the um it was called a big game or the den or something like that. It was basically a 36 hour cash game that was um filmed and edited into a show and like tony g was there ike haxton was there a bunch of girls like that and um i was working there for poker news just writing up the event uh, you know big hands and stuff and what tends to happen at these events when you're in the poker media this is before smartphones this is this is a long time ago this is before smartphones were big is the poker players tend to come up to the media guys and say hey can i uh, just check this like football result or Something like that, and you're the only guy in the in the place with a uh, computer. So you're like, oh "God, okay, fine." <laughs> so um, I uh, there was a UK player called Andrew Feldman, um, not to be mistaken for a former ESPN poker commentator with the same name. Uh, he's a very young guy. He was a very high stakes player. He, he often was in the in the tabloid media in his country because he was so young and playing for such big stakes at the time. Um, and he um, he came up to me and asked me if he could uh, just quickly check something on my computer. So I said, sure. Um, and what he checked was his uh, his Betfair account, the major sports book in the uh, in the UK and Europe. And I didn't forget anything of it. I went back to my hotel that day and I had like a £10 bet on Betfair that I wanted to check if it had won. This was like, you know, will Manchester United win by two goals or something? A very, very small bet. And I opened up, I logged into Betfair, and it said I had (laughs) £300,000 in the account. And, (laughs) yeah. And um, uh, at the time, because the Betfair sports book, there was also a Betfair poker room, which at the time was one of the the softest uh, UK rooms for high stakes. And basically, he'd gone in to check his, either either also to sort of check some bets or maybe to check something on his poker account. But either way, I was now logged into Andrew Feldman's <laughs> Betfair account. And this wasn't like, um, I could have easily stolen, I I, I I twigged straight away what had happened because I, I knew it must have been his account. And I could have easily stolen all the money because um, I could have just told a friend to go to a Betfair table and I could have just chip dumped £300,000. So this wasn't just like um, something where there'd be a two factor authentication thing that would have stopped me from doing anything. Like I really could have taken all this money from him. And uh, I am, um, at the time, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, as we mentioned at the start of the talk, I couldn't get on the property market because I was about two years away from having sort of even touched mental game of poker. So I knew I wasn't going to steal the money, but I probably spent two hours or three hours staring at it, <laughs> just trying to will myself to log out of his his account. I just I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Eventually, I logged out and uh, I was like, oh, such a relief. I know i going to have to look at that money again. And I messaged a guy, and I said, you yeah, know, by the way, you just left me logged into your your account with three hundred thousand pounds sort of staring at me. And he just went, oh, yeah, sorry. Like, <laughs> like it wasn't the most cash. I was probably expecting, like, maybe he was going to throw me five grand to be honest <laughs> or something like that. But, like, it was, so it was really interesting because he was only about 18, and I'd, probably be about um, 20, I'd have been about 27, 28. Yeah. So it was probably because he was so young. Uh, it's just had absolutely a, a cavalier attitude towards money that he, was, he did it in the first place and stuff. But <laughs> that's always my kind of go to degen story where a big amount of money was involved.
1: You sure you had no thought of like, man, I hit it big, Manchester United must have done something beautiful? I,
2: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no. It, the types of bets I was having, I, I, I think I, I think I instantaneously knew what had happened. Um, but still couldn't bring myself to uh sort of tear myself away from it.
1: Oh man, that is a freaking hilarious story. I I, I love that. Um oh, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like some it- it's like a thing to you and for him it's like yeah, whatever. Mm. Um yeah. who would you say is your biggest influence when you entered the world of poker?
2: Um I don't know how well he is no, well known he is in the States, which is funny because he's American, but do you know the poker commentator
1: Jesse May? I've heard the name. I don't know if I could pick him out of a lineup. There. All right.
2: Well, in my opinion, Jesse May is the greatest commentator of all time. Um, he is an American poker player, but he, he kind of, he really made a name for himself in the UK and Ireland. He, uh, he commented on all the early shows, uh, late night poker being the, uh, the, the, the sort of most Uh, sort of foundational example. He was the voice of Late Night Poker, one of the first TV shows. And um, when I got into... The reason why he's good is because he's he's a very enthusiastic kind of guy anyway, but he plays the... um, he, He kind of plays the fool a little bit, and he asks lots of very naive questions, as if he doesn't understand what's going on. what he's actually doing is he's acting as a stand-in for the audience he's asking the questions he knows the audience wants to know because the truth is like very few people know more about poker than jesse may um he he is an absolute scholar of the game a great historian of the game and i i suspect he's actually a much better player than he he lets on because he, he strategically always knows the right things things to ask so when I first got into sort of the poker media, um, there really wasn't anybody around that had been doing any kind of poker media work of any note back then. And Jesse May was one of the only ones. And um, yeah, Je- Je- Jesse definitely Jesse May is an absolute legend of the game. It's it's a real shame that he's actually not as well known in, in the states as he is in in the rest of Europe. But maybe that's why we like him so much. He's kind of like one of ours, even though yeah. he's from the from the states. He's an
1: honorary one of yours yeah I, I I think in really I mean it's a very clever way to go about it right I think that's the right way to go about it is mm-hmm. that in poker commentating and even in this podcast is the way that I think about it is I'm a proxy for my listener and so like I have to basically figure out the questions that they're thinking and then ask the question um, or dive deeper in a thing where they're like oh I want to learn more about that right and I think that like all hosts interviewers uh, commentators folks like that ought to view it in that way that like mm. i am a proxy for the audience and so like if i'm bored well my listeners probably bored too right like and if i'm curious my listeners probably curious too
2: yeah i mean I, 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 this this came into sharp focus for me um early on when i got into poker which was i had a, a card runners account like most people did and half of the videos that I'd watch, um, they'd be talking about concepts in a way that I didn't understand. Maybe I didn't understand the terminology or something like that, which isn't a bad way of doing things because if you're curious and you hear a word like, you know, reverse, if you hear hear someone say reverse implied odds, like if you're curious, you're going to do some research to find out what it is and then you've elevated your own game because of your curiosity. But the videos I always learned the the most from early on was... Uh, Every now and then, Brian Townsend would do a video where he had a student and he would sweat a student while he was playing. I'm I'm pretty certain, like, what they were doing uh, by today's standards would be considered, like, you know, ghosting and illegal. But basically, the student and then the student would say why he was doing something. And then Brian Townsend would kind of then understand... The kind of the logic that they say the typical recreational player is coming at it from, rather than just explaining that you should do this with this hand and this with this hand, he was kind of he would, he would he'd take a step back and maybe remember what it was like when he was first learning the game, and then and then pitch it at that level. So I, I like to think that that's what I have brought to the uh, the four book collaborations that I've I've been in. I, I've always been kind of in the position as the as the ideal customer for those books. Uh, I've done a very,
1: very good job of not improving
2: to, enough to, um, <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to to go ahead of the audience.
1: Yes, you're doing it for it's a professional choice to not it's, get better at poker.
2: It is, it is a tremendous skill, not improving.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of interesting that you say that because the way that I structure my private coaching sessions is very similar in that mm. my students will record a play and explain video and then they will verbalize their thought process. Mm, I download good. the yeah. video and we like, we'll go through a hand and we'll pause and then we'll dive deeper into like the questions that they're asking. What I've learned after doing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these is that it's made me a better player and it's made me a much better coach too, mm. because like the curse of knowledge is a real thing where, you know, you, you can't, unknow what you know and so you you can speak in ways you can try to communicate in ways that are just above the heads of the people that you're talking to inadvertently and it's hard to like revert back to an earlier state right so like really just diving deep into the fundamentals understanding like oh okay this player's at this level this is their paradigm this is why they think about things in this way well what's the next level up and then we'll try to get them there I, i think is at least in my experience, has been the best way to approach, you know, coaching people privately.
2: I, I think that's a great way of, uh, for a couple of other reasons as well. I mean, it's um, when you force a student to verbalize why they're doing something, it actually really will fundamentally expose the instances where they don't know why they're doing something. Like for I'm like, I've I've had this myself. I've done a bunch of videos with um, Dar and David of the of the chip race, um, where I'm playing and there and there then reviewing the action afterwards and sometimes I'll verbalize like oh well, I I mean this was an actual example like like I well I'm betting 33% of pot here and I don't know why I'm doing that it's just I've seen everybody else doing it on twitch <laughs> was the actual reason and I, I I only realized that in real time and then you know what that led to a discussion about you know um you know the merits of a, a like a one third pot, pot bet what um, is the reason why I think that's a good one? Oh, also, like, the other thing is, like, the the single best way that... The best way that I learn is when I basically get coached one-on-one. That's definitely the, the best way for me to learn. But then the second best way I learn is if I then create content about the thing I'm learning on, and I'm specifically talking about the books that I've worked on. The I have massive holes in my game that I just probably embarrassing, but there's small pockets of the game that I am very good at um, because I've written books on the subject, somebody else's material where I write it. And it's, it's basically a case of once I'm able to create the content to the point where uh, the co-author says, yes, that's correct. You know, I've been through so many iterations of it. So by you making your students do that, you're, you are actually making them make content, even if, they're, or even if the audience is just one. So, yeah, no, I think that's an ideal way for someone to learn, or at least, you know, people who are active learners, who which I definitely am.
1: Yeah, and here's a, here's a little tip, and for the listener, too, I think this will be help- helpful. You mentioned the betting, you know, one-third pot on a board and just doing it because other people do it, and you didn't really know why. Mm. Something that I've learned is that if you don't understand why you're doing it, you also don't understand how the complementary aspect of the situation. So you probably don't understand how to play well versus the one third pot size bet. Mm, mm. So like in spots where, you know, if you're facing a three bet on the button versus the small blind and you don't know what to do, like, you don't know what your flatting range, you don't know whether four bet you probably don't know how to three bet well from the small blind either because Mm. those two are very related. If you know exactly how to three bet from the small blind, well, you would know pretty Pretty well, how to defend on the button. So, like basically, whenever you find a leak, look for its opposite and then dive in there. And that can also, you know, make a lot of bang for your buck.
2: I have a, I have a similar example. Um, I am someone who uh, didn't memorize ranges very well. Um, I had a rough idea, um, but would often, uh, it's not so much I wouldn't memorize them. I, I'd actually struggle to memorize them at later stages of the game tree. Like I'll like I'll know my I'll know my free betting range pre-flop. But then once we got to the turn, suddenly I'm think I'm thinking like, oh this guy could have King Queen, but I was like, well no, he that was never in the first range, that sort of thing. Um something that Dara um sort of really helped me with where that was concerned was whenever he uh whenever we'd look at a range he'd always look at the um corresponding range just as he said. So like if I was doing a free betting range it's like why do we free bet uh all these suited aces and it's like well because you know in this person's opening range um they they have a lot of aces so if we freebet the aces we block those aces and so on. so yeah the the same thing helped me looking at the the ranges that would call um that would open when you freebet or call when you open and stuff like that it actually helped me get a more holistic view of ranges in general which was very helpful
1: oh it, it for sure is and you know that's why the very first course that i created with Chasing Poker Greatness was preflop boot camp, And it was just because I was so tired of hearing my community or w- looking at hand histories in my community and just seeing them butcher hands preflop. Mm. I was like, oh my God, we have to fix this. Like this is just obscene. And like most people have access to some kind of ranges, some kind of preflop ranges. And it's almost in the same way that they have access to like a bunch of books on their bookshelf that they never read. Yeah, um, they're just like, oh well, I've got them, so somehow I, am just magically gonna learn them through osmosis. And it's like yeah. you really need to take the time to systematically go through every single one, study them deliberately, reflect, meditate, quiz, use social accountability, and, and you know that was how my very first course kind of came about. It's same same thing. It's just like. I think human beings on their own, they don't really love doing the hard stuff or <laughs> the stuff that's uncomfortable, you know? No,
2: I mean like I've interviewed pretty much every uh sort of big poker player. I, I suspect you've interviewed more than more than me actually now with our prolific podcasters. And the um I, I would say um the number one um uh, sort of trait of very successful poker players is that they just enjoy the hard work of study almost as much as playing. You it's know, they, hard they, work though, like that's well, the no, it's not. It's not no. hard work to them if they they, they enjoy that, or, or they 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 get a result from it just like they do a poker result. Like you know, I, I one of the reasons why I um, I, I hold Dara in such high, high regard is that I know that he could win the Sunday Million. And if I had a tricky sort of hand from the big twenty-two the same day, he would then he would then enthusiastically, you know, hop on Skype and, and chat with me about the hand immediately after winning the Sunday Million. Like for him, the, the study and the poker is almost as enjoyable as each other. Like, and that is a trait that I see again and again in in, in very successful poker players. The ones that don't enjoy studying, I, I don't think I don't think they last.
1: I think too, like we should really try to figure out like the best way for, you know, you, the listener, for people to study, right? Because different Mm -hmm. methodologies resonate with people differently. And so like the word study, actually, I hate that word. Like I'll say it, but like when I think of study, I think of like being in high school, opening a textbook and being forced to read something that's just like very boring and awful. And so I, I have like a negative connotation in the same way that I actually have a negative connotation with work. Um, mm. For a long time, I would be like, yeah, okay, I'm, go- I'm going to work. And I realized that like I was priming myself to not enjoy that I was about to go mm, play cards yeah. for a living. And so like one day I was like, okay, I'm just going to say playing cards from now on. Like I'm just, I'm going to play cards and mm. it removed that negative connotation. So I think like, you know, the language that you use, the methodology that you you use to learn and improve, like for me, get me in like a group of two other people and we're like uh, investigating and being curious and diving deep and learning. Like I'll sit there all day uh, on my own, just like running Sims, That that is not me. I, I'm not going to be that person that just runs mm-hmm. Sims all day long by themselves. Like I, I need the social aspect of it and... Um, yeah, and I think, too, like, high-level poker players love problem-solving. They they see mm. a problem, and they just want to solve it. They want to see, like, what the solution is, and it's, like, exciting to find out, like, oh, this is how we're supposed to play our range on this specific board in a three-bet pot. And, yeah, you really need to have that sort of excitement and curiosity to to be a high-level poker player.
2: You are right about poker players where that's concerned. Like, I, I have had many... Um, you know, hilarious conversations with poker players where we, we will try and solve a stupid problem that doesn't need solving. Like, for example, like one I remember I was on Twitter and I got a surprising amount of high stakes players in, involved in this conversation. But I, I was trying to work out the the EV of not paying for parking tickets. Like, <laughs> I, like you know, if it was like if it was like a pound to get an hour's parking and the fine was £25, like, you know, what's my, you know, can I do this 25 times and break even and stuff like that? And, like, it, it got detailed, I think <laughs> is, the, is, the, is the way to describe it. And you're absolutely right. There is, like, I'd, I'd say the two groups of people that seem to have this kind of willingness to go into so much detail about and solve problems that don't need solve it is probably poker players and stand-up comedians. Like that's the one commonality I've seen between them. Like you know, people will go into minute detail. It's uh, it's one of the more fun things about being around poker players
1: for sure. Yeah, Clayton Fletcher ticks both boxes. He he's got it all.
0: The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy. To run over. Preflop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to slash bootcamp. Available now.
1: John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp.
3: Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the Poker Power Hour and loved that and then i took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp and at first i didn't think it was you know something that would be that valuable but i was like everything else has been amazing so i signed up and then it just blew me away
1: and what about boot camp blew you away like it started off slow
3: like i'm learning these ranges and i'm not even understanding what you're talking about and then all of a sudden as i start to understand what we're doing with the three bets the four bets all of a sudden it just kind of hit me and i was like oh my god how do i not know this stuff this is amazing the more i studied them i started to understand why they were constructed sometimes like i'd be like that's why that's like that and that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general
1: do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience?
3: The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post-game as it did for my pre-game. Just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10-15 minutes of tape without Finding mistake after mistake, and then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well.
1: I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study?
3: Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year, out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to to know that stuff ten years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now. If I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp. Because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you.
1: If you'd like to join the next round of pre flop Boot Camp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month. Head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com bootcamp. What would you say is your, uh, your superpower in the world of poker? Something that, I know you're a very self-deprecating guy. But... No,
2: I, 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 yeah, I think... The only thing I think I do well, and it's 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 decent, it's decent, a decent thing, so I'm not being self-deprecating, is
1: I, I, <laughs> you, well, I... Hold on, hold on, hold on. When you preface a sentence by saying, the only thing I do well, and no, it's, it's not big self-deprecating. It's,
2: it's, it's a big thing. Though. <laughs> I, 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 I honestly, and I am not saying this to be modest, I don't consider myself to be a great writer. I think there are many, many, many writers better than me in the poker industry, and I'm certainly not a great player. The one thing I think I do well is I personally think I can see where things fit together in the poker world. And I think I know what the audience is looking for in the poker world. Like, There's been a lot of times when I've um, worked for, say, a poker site, and seen an opportunity where i was like well this you know this would be a natural sponsor for this site because they've got these shared interests and but similar things like i i genuinely think i've got a good handle on what um the poker audience is looking for a lot of the time which is why i think the the books that i've done have been, have been my contribution has been good because i think i've structured the, the books in a way that uh, sort of uh, fits with how people want to learn and stuff so i see my in that respect i see my kind of sort of like a matchmaker of ideas in the vocal world i don't consider myself a great writer or a great player but i'm a i'm the glue that keeps things together i guess is what i'm saying
1: the ego on you barry how how do you fit through the doorway with that big head of yours?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I think I'm good at one thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I think your professional, you know, your professional career reflects, you know, the mental game of poker, PKOs, the satellite strategy book that, you know, you made with uh, Dara. All these things are like, you know, you have a vision of what's needed and what the what what the poker industry is gonna want. And I think that that is A superpower having that vision because obviously it's it's allowed you to have your property and have that nice little back door the uh backyard behind you right there and it's giving you a lot of (laughs) a lot of success and um you know being the co-author of just you know some of the most beloved books and most influential books in in the world of poker is just it's an incredible incredible thing
2: yet to write one on my own though always got that co-author thing going
1: you know Oh, yeah, yeah but Dara, Dara's co-author, right? Like, and Jared.
2: Yeah, but they, they got the big letter in. I got the small letter in.
1: <laughs> well, who, who made that? Who made that decision? Yeah, uh,
2: that was me. That was me being self-deprecating. Oh, so so
1: you did it, right? So you made yourself think, smaller so that you could complain about it later. <laughs> well, yeah, because I,
2: I just don't want anyone to think it's my advice. I guess is the is the thing because that's uh, although the like I was uh, joking about this with uh, David Lappin. Well. I was joking. He wasn't laughing, but um, (laughs) he he was um, he was bemoaning the fact that he often gets asked if he plays poker because everyone thinks he's like the straight man to Dara's poker player. Like, and uh, and he's you know obviously David Lappin is a professional poker player and he's a very very good one. I often get mistaken for a very good poker player. People often think I'm very, very good at poker, and I'm like, no, no, no. I'm a recreational player that happens to know like two things slightly better than the average Rick because I wrote a book about them. So yeah, I often get mistaken for being a, a really, really good player yeah. well, until I share a table with someone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, on, on the flip side, I, I like your side of it. I think better, better than David's. You know, it's a thing that like it. it it's a thing that I. I've struggled with too over the past year, to be honest, is like, man, I'm going to be known as like a poker podcaster and an interviewer when like, I've done this for 20 years of my life. Like I'm better. I'm a world-class poker player. And I, 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 yeah, sometimes I I let that get to me or it eats at me. And I'm like, I need to just drop everything for a few months and just get on the grind and just battle and go to war and prove it to everybody. And then I'm like, you know what? Like, what's the point?
0: Like,
2: but I think the the poker players are by far the best content creators in poker, uh, like, by a mile. And I, I think there's, like, a symbiotic relationship. Like, if you... I don't know who you follow on Twitch, but, like, the, two of the guys that I watch a lot on Twitch are Ben Spraggy Sprag and Finton Hand, right? And they were entertaining Twitch streamers who were okay at poker. And they are becoming amazingly entertaining twitch streamers who are becoming fantastic amazing at poker like they were playing like you know 50 dollar tournaments two years ago that was their biggest buying and they're regularly playing like the high roller end of things and, and doing well and you know i think they've both had six figure scores on stream now and i think the i think the uh process of creating content has made them better players a bit, and and vice versa and especially twitch guys because the, the, unlike everybody else in poker they um let everybody see all the mistakes that they make and get absolutely crucified for them like if if you even the training video people could edit out hands that they absolutely butchered but you know if you if you play a hand terribly on twitch everybody sees it and then you've i think that develops kind of a uh, humility and a backbone in those sort of guys so no the the best content creators are poker players and it seems they all want to do it now so i don't think you should be in any way kind of ashamed of your poker roots being uh sort of uh
1: nah it's like a yeah. it's like an ego thing here's the irony barry like here's the here's the irony of, of this whole thing that's like inter internally i struggle with sometimes is that I started the poker podcast to tell to uh, facilitate folks t- talking about their journey through poker because I was tired of talking about poker <laughs> mm. <laughs> because I was tired of dealing with poker strategy and now I'm like oh wait a minute no 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 I, I do this other thing too but anyway it's a uh, it- it's all it's all internal and it's just kind of a silly thing and like I I think in that way like people are vulnerable on Twitch where they make mistakes. And yeah. there's really no hiding from them. I I think that like, um, yeah, I give myself permission to uh, to feel the way that I feel, and eventually I, I just get over it. Like after a day or so,
2: I, I know I know what you mean though, because like I, I could th- there comes a there comes kind of an inflection point where if you made double uh, coaching players uh, that you did compared to what you would uh, play in poker. People, some people would be skeptical of that, right? Because they're like, "Oh, you're you're not a professional poker player. You're just selling courses and stuff like that." But like, it's a double-edged sword because if, if the courses are good and it's because you were winning at poker, then you know, for some people, they're going to make more doing that. So, but I can understand why like some people would want to uh, make sure the biggest single revenue stream was always going to be the poker itself.
1: Um, I don't really care about the opinions of those people, to be honest, because those mm-hmm. people like. They're not my people anyway. Like they're not customers. And I think anybody that says stuff like that on Twitter is like, they're just trying to they're just trying to be a troll. Mm. And they're not like ideal customers. They're just a loud person that likes complaining about all the things and like yeah. I, I I very much hope that in the next couple of years, like my business revenue it would be like 10X what I would be making playing poker full time. I mean, that's the goal, right? Like mm. that's that's sort of the goal of the things that I'm doing. So, anyway, we'll uh, we'll put a pin in that conversation. Maybe, maybe if I feel, uh, yeah, if I get angered in the future, I'll I'll invite you on and you can like play therapist to me um, oh, yeah. Yeah. for an episode. I,
2: I, I can safely say that my uh, my poker content revenue is more than 10x My uh, poker wins, <laughs> but, but that's not necessarily bragging.
1: <laughs> there you go. There you go. What you, out of all your years. Doing the stuff in the poker world, writing, creating content, all this stuff. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey?
2: It's just just the people I get to meet. Like I, you know, I I, I led a very um, mundane life in the, in the UK prior to poker, where I just I only knew people from the same town as me, and and the um, the fact that I have friends in all corners of the world and get to meet people from all over the world and sometimes i can go to a country that's thousands and thousands of miles away but bump into somebody i know that's a very uh, that's just a wonderful experience like like i i love the fact that i got i got married in like for example like i got married in new york and jared was my best man like the there's, there's no other situation where he and I would have crossed paths. I think that's an absolutely wonderful thing. So, just, um, just the broadening of those horizons has been absolutely amazing for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, nothing compares to the relationships that we make just in our lives in any facet of our, I mean, at least in my professional life. Like, I'll never forget a story about Brian Hastings. You know, when he beat Victor Blom out of like uh, 5 yeah. million dollars or something that one it was it was,
2: it was 4 million dollars is the yep. biggest winning session online in history i've uh, written about that a few times
1: yeah <laughs> thank thank you for the 4 million dollars yeah, yeah. um he went to like a bar like a- after he had won the money and he realized that he had nobody to celebrate the win with and like that was actually like a pretty devastating moment for him where he mm. was like wow I, I i had this like epic legendary i mean he didn't know it was going to be legendary back then i mean who knows maybe he thought he'd be winning four million dollars a night all the time yeah but um he, he wins this has this epic legendary session and then has nobody to celebrate it with and he just instantly felt awful like he just didn't he just felt bad um and he felt depressed about it and he like had this sort of like existential crisis type moment and i think that like that's just reflects how important it is to have people to celebrate with and have people to call and you know to interact with and like just people you're comfortable just waking up in the middle of the night like holy shit look look what happened like this is insane mm-hmm. um so yeah anyway that story's just always stuck with me as it relates to like you know the value of relationships and the value of money
2: It's it's also kind of a um just a way, reminds you to philosophical about your own goals because like I I often I don't know about you but sometimes after I've achieved a goal whether you know graduating university or one of the books that I've done something like that I I tend to be a little bit down for a a few weeks because it's like you've been so invested in something for so long and you've been doing the grind for so long and all of a sudden it's like what the hell do I do now and it's just it's a very kind of like jarring woken up moment I'm almost having a similar thing like now that we can go out again in the uk i was like well, I was part of me thinks what what did i used to do like so yeah I, I, I can understand why he would feel very very down about that but even more so if people aren't there to celebrate with you
1: it's i mean to tie it back into earlier it's Goodhart's law right like you, mm. you optimize to graduate that was your target you invested mm. everything into that goal and that target and then it wasn't there and so like oh, now what, now what do I do? You don't have, I mean, Mm -hmm. you see that all the time with like Olympic athletes, right? They win a gold Mm -hmm. medal and then they go through a massive amount of depression because like they achieve their goal. They optimize Mm -hmm. for that target. And now what the hell do I do after this? Like I, Mm -hmm. I, you kind of have this, like, how do I spend my life? If I, I accomplished the thing I wanted to do now, what, um, which yeah, just process oriented thinking versus the, um, target and measure oriented thinking i think just does a lot of wonders and also have having goals like behind the goals too is like always having a target to shoot for so that like you don't find yourself oh i just did everything i wanted to do now 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 what's next
2: yeah it must be awful for people who get it really uh, achieve a major goal like that really early in life i I always think about like Uh, like women's gymnastics, you know, where the the, the athletes sometimes peak at 15. Like if like a young girl sort of achieves Olympic gold at 15, it's like, wow, Like they really, really have to find a way to completely change and take up something new because otherwise you're going to be sort of living in that shadow for the rest of your life. That must be really hard.
1: Yeah, for sure. And knowing what I know now about women's gymnastics specifically, and just the Olympians specifically as well. Like they're not, they're not trained. They're they're not um, given the support, the mental health support to be able to navigate after that happens by Mm -hmm. really any association. They just do a shitty job of protecting their athletes, a shitty job of insulating them and making sure that they're safe before and then after the Olympics. And I think that like the Olympics to me, I'm not even gonna watch them. I don't think move. It's just like it feels like the biggest scam on the planet are the Olympics. And this is somebody that loves competition, but I think like just protect your people. You know, it's like protect the people that have made you what you are. Like without your athletes, you're not shit. And yeah, just just protect them. But.
2: It's funny, the Olympics is my favorite sporting event by a mile. It's um, I used to live with an Olympian, um, no, he wasn't an Olympian. This is a point of the story. Um, a very, very good friend of mine, um, was one of the best swimmers in the world. He's Australian, and um, he was very unfortunate to be the third best swimmer in Australia, and he was also the third best swimmer in the world. At his <laughs> oh, sport wow, sport. yeah, but this is the unfortunate thing because Australia pride themselves on their swimmers they only took two people uh, one of them being Ian Thorpe the Forbido uh, you know, one of the greatest of all times and I can't remember who the other guy was so they had an almost shoe in for bronze as well, my friend David um, but they, they didn't take him And the guy who came bronze in the event, it was uh, he nowhere didn't come anywhere near what my friend's speed tended to be. So there's a and I I was he was living with me and he was just watching the Olympics. And to be fair, like he had, you know, clearly he was looked after mentally because he handled it like an absolute champ. He was, you know, he was really enjoying watching the Olympics, even though he kind of should have been there. It was was very unusual experience to watch an Olympic event. Like, I'm there eating some Doritos, sat next to the guy that almost certainly would have conferred. And, yeah, he he took it really well. He, he like, after that, he had to, um, you know, start. I think he was, like, 33 or something like that when he, that was the end of his swimming career. And then he had to, you know, find a regular job and forge a normal career. And luckily for him, whatever mindset he developed as a swimmer, Translate it to business because he's like an incredibly successful salesman now and he's uh, got to the top of his field again but yeah weird it's uh that they, they clearly looked after him and evidently they don't do it for all of the olympians
1: well i can't speak for everybody around the world or every country you know like i think uh, that's a great story by the way and it's another example of like yeah just take three you like
0: Yeah. If if it's
1: possible, if it's within the rules, then bring three. Why go two if you have the top three? But um but yeah, uh I'll expand before I get a bunch of like Olympic hate mail um (laughs) in, in my in my email inbox. But basically like the way that I think about it is okay, so I watched the documentary, Lolo Jones, who's like one uh an Olympian, one of the more famous Olympians, like when she was pursuing her dreams, she was working at like a smoothie shop. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, and like people would come in the gym where she's like working, making smoothies. And she said one time she was like on the TV, and like somebody looked at the TV and then looked at her, and they're like, "Is that's you?" <laughs> she's mm-hmm. like, "Yeah." I mean, she's got to like pay for her training through making mm-hmm. smoothies, and and it's like, wow, like this is what we can do. And then like if you look at China, where you know they built the was it like the Bird's Nest. All the places mm. where they like yeah. hold Olympics, they're just like barren wastelands after the fact. These countries invest like billions of dollars building facilities that just are totally worthless. Um, after all, everybody leaves. It's just like a uh, yeah.
2: My my friend was not it di- he didn't make any money from swimming, even though he de- devoted his life to it. Um, right. The only the only the only way he um, uh, kind of was able to do it was because he was able to find sponsors for each individual. Um, the sort of tournament that he was in and stuff. So you know, he was pretty much broke by the time that he uh, he got out of it. And w- another funny experience I had with him was like uh, when he came to, I went to a football match with him. I support a team called Sheffield Wednesday, who are now a third division team. We're very pretty low down in the uh, in the leagues in the UK, and th- they were in the third division at the time as well. And he was. Uh, he, we were watching the game, and he didn't know football at all—sorry, um, soccer—and and, um, <laughs> and he, he was asking me like, "How much the players get paid?" And I was like, like pointing—I <laughs> was like pointing to the players, like you know, I was pointing to the player that just sort of slipped over trying to keep the ball, saying, "Oh, he he gets paid like four grand a week." And then you know, duh, I pointed to the fat guy that sort of hasn't had a shot on target all day. So he gets three grand a week and something like that. And I, then I realized I was like, I was pointing to probably the. Six thousandth best footballer in the world, and he was he was pulling in something like fifteen thousand pounds sterling a week. And there's my friend, the third best swimmer in the world, and he was you know empty pockets. Yeah. So it's... yeah, yeah, I'm starting to come around on this. The Olympics can go for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's, 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 still, it's still my favorite thing to watch. But yeah, I, you... I
1: love the competition. I love the competitors. I, I love watching it too. I just don't love the you know International Olympic Committee.
2: It's because it it was, it was always sort of there's always this facade that it's a it's amateur competition. They've, they've always said it's amateur athletes, and I think it's because what what they actually mean by that is they just don't pay them.
1: Yeah, um, exactly.
2: Because like you have, um, uh, because what tends to happen is like at least in the UK, like it, like we're good at rowing in the UK. We've got lots of rowing events, and the guys tend to have other jobs or be part of a university or something like that. But then you have um, you know, but then the football what happens there, it will be people that pray in the Premier League. And then the basketball, you have the dream team come every year, and they're all – these are the guys that make a million dollars a week, right? So they claim it's an amateur competition, but it, it, I think that's – it's a bit like college football, right, in the in the U.S. They, they don't pay those guys there, even though entire economies are built around the teams,
1: right? Yeah, it, NCAA. I mean, Alabama pays Nick Saban $10 million a year to coach the team, and – the players are amateurs so they don't yeah they don't get paid they can't even they can't even autograph stuff and sell like stuff with their own autograph like that's against yeah, that's, regulations
2: that's that's totally wrong i mean i think from the from the moment that you become uh, a commodity the moment, yeah exactly the moment uh, you're an ambassador a commodity the moment it's televised the moment i mean like I'm. i'm saying this as a joke but it's true like the, the moment that People start giving you death threats if you have a bad performance and stuff like that, which happens with sports fans, all every type of sport. Uh, I know that that's totally wrong. They should get paid, um, especially because especially you know with certain sports, sometimes the careers are really really short. You know, if it's American football or rugby in the UK, like one injury and that's it, your career's over. So,
1: yeah, they they should definitely get paid, for sure. But you know, it's it's the world that we live in. But mm. you know, I guess that's that's all we can do. Um, all right, you 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 somehow sucked me into the the British complaining about things. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> uh, some secret way. Mis-
2: misery Loves Company.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like complaining about things sometimes too. All right. So we'll uh just a couple more questions and we'll wrap up, get you out of here. By the way, you missed an opportunity to to co-author your very first book with your friend, by the way, the the swimmer.
2: Oh <laughs> that was your first chance. Oh, Barry. I mean I'm a really bad swimmer. So that that, 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 well, that, that, that that would have been perfect, right? No, I mean like every now and then I have a little win at poker to make it plausible. But like you should see me swimming, right? I like, <laughs> I, like I'm a I'm a pretty strong guy generally speaking and when I when I go um swim I am like pounding the water as hard as I can and then you know 70-year-old ladies will just be breaststroking <laughs> doing laps on me going me, I am terrible at swimming. I could I could barely keep myself alive that, <laughs> if I was in the water.
1: That might be the title of this episode. That could, that could, that could be, yeah. <laughs> Better poker player than swimmer.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: <laughs> um, what are some things that you you wish you'd said no to more often?
2: Ooh, great question. Um, uh, a lot of things actually. Uh, for a long time, I I was a bit of a people pleaser, and I, I definitely said, yeah. Um lots and lots of free like working for free for people because you know that whole thing of um oh it'll get you exposure and stuff like that mm. um yeah i i i, I just I, I tend to do a lot of things to be nice uh no single one sort of springs to mind right now other than when you asked me to do this interview.
1: <laughs> other than this exact no, thing that you're doing uh, for free
2: in all seriousness i i actually really love doing interviews i'll i'll, I'll, I'll really appeals to my vanity to be honest but lots and lots and lots of small jobs Um, like I've got better at saying no to things um, in the last sort of four or five years and so simply because I've not had time to do things and that makes things a lot easier but I I often would do lots and lots and lots of small jobs for free for people because I thought you know you never know that might get me something later down the line
1: yeah uh, it's And it almost never does. And I think the the reality is like people reach out to me and like ask me for basically coaching in email form. And I've just I originally felt compelled to just respond and reply. And like when somebody Mm -hmm. sends me a mess a direct message, I'm like feel compelled to respond and like give put my heart and soul in this reply. And I've just realized, like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, I'm just mm. not. It's not. Uh, it never works out. Like, I, I'm not getting anything out of this this situation. And yeah, it's like it's a give and take, right? It's a value proposition. And like, at least, at least with the podcast, you know, we we get some laughs. We get to laugh. We have a good yeah, time. It's, it's an experience.
2: I, I actually think that the sort of people that tend to contact people out of the blue and expect stuff for free are not going to
1: use the information anyway. No. Um, and they're not going to be like a good customer or client ever. It,
2: but but it's by the same token, like I've never I've never really worried about piracy uh with the the books that uh I've put out there because I, I genuinely believe that the sort of person that pirates a book is not going to read it anyway. So they never were going to buy the thing. And um I, I mean I, I know like I, I've been fortunate enough um because of my job that I occasionally get given uh, free subscriptions to well-known training sites and things like that, and I almost never put any effort into into them because uh, because it was for free. But you know, the the, the times that I, in my outside of poker, there's been plenty of uh, books and training products and stuff that I've bought that I put a lot of effort into because I've spent money on them. Absolutely. So yep. so I I think I think generally speaking, the people that are reaching out for free uh, free stuff in this context they're sometimes just asking you like almost asking if that you'll just do everything for them so
1: funny story funny little anecdote on that i so i mentioned preflop boot camp earlier my brother-in-law went through preflop boot camp and i made him pay <laughs> like yeah. i made him pay to get in because i mm. i understand exactly what you said when you get something for free, you don't value it. And because you don't yeah. value it, you don't invest energy into consuming the material, into learning it, into putting it in practice so that it improves your life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's why like I I don't give discounts on anything that I do. Um, I agree with that, yeah. yeah. Anything that I sell, uh, if you buy it like right now, it's the lowest price it'll ever be. But as I improve it and upgrade it, I raise the price too. Mm-hmm. And, and like that's just the way that I structure all my stuff. And it's like yeah, like I want my brother-in-law to be a successful poker player and I care about him. And you might think, well, maybe you should just give it to him for free if you really cared about him. But no, I I want him to do the work. And that's a way that, you know, I ensure he does the work because he invested his own money into it. And now he's committed, right?
2: Yeah, and there has has to be kind of some sort of pain associated with not doing the work right. So, you you know, you could... um... Yeah, if you, someone spends 500 bucks on something like that, you'd be like, wow, I, I better get something out of this. I better, you know, even if the content wasn't necessarily amazing, maybe it's better sometimes to uh, go for the higher price thing because it's going to sort of get the adrenaline going and sort of force you to hyper focus on, on, on improving.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, just a couple more questions, and we will wrap up. So what's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart?
2: Uh, I am working on, um, like I mentioned, I've had an unproductive year. And I have been working on a new book with Dara. Um, we uh, we did satellites. We did PKOs. Uh, this is the, what we consider to be the third book of the trilogy. And the, the, the topic is ICM, the independent chip model in poker, uh, specifically for normal uh what people call vanilla tournaments where it's just a, a regular payout structure um and the uh you know the the two previous books we we wrote them in a this is in, a, in order of the most important things to learn so like in the satellite book we started with uh, how to play in the bubble because that's the most important part of a satellite this book is quickly becoming a uh an, like a theory book about poker it's not a practical book Uh, Sorry, a theory book about ICM. It's not a practical book, but it's very, very, very interesting. Um, Since we got let out of uh, our houses and allowed to do stuff with lockdown, this book is just pouring out of me now. The the fact that I can leave the house and reset my mind a little bit, is coming out really, really quickly, whereas I was just slacking on it while we were still locked down. Uh, So I'm I'm really enjoying it at the moment. uh, We're doing some interesting stuff. I think we're Covering a lot of things that very few poker players know about the, uh, the topic of the independent chip model in poker uh, would love to get listeners uh, thoughts on what a compelling name for the book would be because just calling it ICM at the moment might uh, alienate some of the audience and confuse others. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. Send, send, uh, we'll, we'll tie that into the final question. If the chasing poker greatness audience wants to give you a great name for your next book, where can they do so?
2: uh get me on Twitter Barry underscore Carter on twitter yeah it's funny like you know if i give, if I give out my email, then I just sit on the on the uh, on the responses that people send in but if someone re- sends something to me on twitter uh whilst I am trying to um sort of curb how much I use it, like I will respond pretty instantaneously. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I just
1: I think we feel like the person's like there waiting. Yeah, we're like waiting for a response, so we're like you'll exactly, feel, yeah. feel compelled to reply. Um, man, it's been great having you on the show. As always, this is number three for you, and I'm mm-hmm. sure there will be four, five, six down the road. Especially you know once you get ICM, uh, in the vanilla tournaments, then you've got ICM for PKOs. You got you got all the kind of stuff um, loaded up or possibilities after that. So, yeah. uh, best of luck. Looking forward to your next book with Dara. Thank you for your time and your energy, man. And uh, talk to you soon.
2: Anytime. Thank you very much, Brad.
0: Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community. Book a coaching session or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.